Thank you. Good morning. I have the privilege uh, in a tenant ministry to receive a number of invitations, um, but there are some places that I don't wait for an invitation. With unashamed audacity, I ask if I can come. And this is one of those places. I don't know how you feel about that. Um, but I'm just being very, very honest with you concerning that. Um, yeah, Byron, we, sh- we share quite a long history, don't we? And um, he and I, uh, I think, mutually appreciate uh, the journeys that we've shared together. At least I hope that's the case. And um, I-, I do look forward to coming here. I always have. And uh, this morning... Uh, I would like to invite you, if you would, to turn to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5, and I'll, I'll join you there in just a moment. <clears throat> just the other day, and maybe you've heard this, so humor me if you've already heard it. Just the other day, I heard about a man who talked about how he learned to mind his own business. It seems he was walking past a mental hospital And as he's walking past this mental hospital, he heard all the patients shouting, 13, 13, 13, 13. He said the fence was too high for him to see over it, but he saw a little gap in the boards. And so he decided to walk over and investigate and see what was going on. And so when he looked through the gap, one of the patients poked him in the eye And he heard all of them in chorus saying, 14, 14, 14, 14. (laughs) Now, I'm going to say a few things here in the beginning that I hope would create context for what follows. And uh, I probably said this in previous visits, if this is your first time and you've never been in a meeting where I've been speaking, then I encourage you not to judge river life on the basis of what follows. Um, And sometimes I think people have great difficulty in reading me because I have such a poker face. So I'm going to remind myself as much as possible Uh, to brighten up (laughs) for you. Uh, I I really feel important for me to to also remind you, I'm still married, even though my wife has not been with me on uh, the last few of my visits here. Uh, She wanted to be this time, uh, but she's getting ready to get on a plane this afternoon and head out of town. She's not running from me because I told her a long time ago, you can never get away from me. I think you might agree that all of the obsession that we have surrounding us over the darkness of our times, in many ways, is more ungodly than the darkness itself. Should I say that again? Obsessing over the darkness, this present darkness that surrounds us, I believe, is more ungodly than the darkness itself. The first recorded words of God in the scripture was, let there be light. So I take a clue from that, that chaotic conditions 
really should prompt me, should prompt all of us to make a declaration that dispels darkness. Thank you. Uh, In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says something that, to say the least, is really subversive in nature uh, for that particular culture, and you'll understand why as I unpack this further. It's very subversive. It really is an alternative form of wisdom. Uh, I talk a lot lately about contrasting conventional wisdom and alternative wisdom. And I also make no apology for reminding the church culture that it seems that in many ways the media has become more responsible for discipling us than the gospel has. I don't mean for that to be some hard serve over the net, so to speak, uh, using that metaphor. I, I do believe it's true, though, and it's easy. It's very subtle, isn't it? It's very, very subtle. An understanding that while we sleep, there's a script that is being crafted so that when we wake up in the morning, they decide what is important for us to pay attention to. And so I think we have to return to the timeless wisdom of Jesus. Would you agree with that? Return to the timeless wisdom of Jesus and see how that he confronted the conventional wisdom of his time. And we need to do the same and recognize that there is another way of looking at things. I mean, there are many different definitions of what wisdom is and what it looks like, but in reality, it has to do with how we see things because the way we see things are not necessarily the way they are. It's just the way we see them. And Jesus is constantly adjusting the perspective of his audience and helping them to see things in a different way. In Matthew 5, verses 38, my text is found in verses 38 through 41. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. Now, he's very specific here. and I want you to notice this. If anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I'm not sure we we are fully aware that those that heard this, when it hit their ears, just how subversive that was, just how challenging that was. I, I want to talk to you, and I believe that this is inherent in what Jesus is saying, about the power of powerlessness. And that sounds rather paradoxical, doesn't it? Now, on a very, on a very practical level, I know that there are people in this room that are in situations where you feel utterly powerless. Anyone? I mean, there are a variety of situations in which people in this room feel completely powerless. And I think, oddly enough, that we fail to understand that our perceived strength often is usually the source of our most debilitating weakness. Wow. Yeah, that's true. 
If we believe, this is something that really began to resonate in me just in the last few days because I was considering some of the people in the orbit of my life that I felt had undue influence over my life. And so as a result, I began to believe that the decisions of those that were in power, and I put that in quotes, in power in my life, that they were the ones that were determining the trajectory or they were determining the direction of my life. And when we begin to think like that, we are allowing ourselves to be held hostage to their hustle. I really think this is what Jesus was saying. We're waiting for them to make certain decisions before we decide that we can make our decisions. And when we do that, we're asleep at the wheel. It's true. We have to decide what we want or we'll have to settle for what we get. I understand that God is sovereign. And this might seem irreverent or almost borderline blasphemous to a lot of people, but he's not in control. The heavens are the Lord. The scripture says, makes that clear, right? But the earth he's given to the children of men. There are so many of the things that are problematic for many of us, and we tend to want to shift blame or project on someone else. I would love to be able... And I've done it. I've been guilty of it many times to blame so much of what is problematic in my life on the enemy, my adversary, whatever you want to call him. The truth is I've been present in every problem I've ever had. And you know it's true. I mean, I'm not telling you anything new that wherever you go, you're there. Sometimes it has nothing to do with God. It has nothing to do with Diablo. It really has to do with the way that I'm allowing it to affect me. Peace never has been the absence of problems. Never has been. Peace has always been about perspective. Anybody agree with me on that? Are you still with me? You know, uh, it's been said by a man much wiser than I that problems cannot be solved on the same level of thinking that created them. And this is really what Jesus, I think, is at the heart of what Jesus is talking about. I, I, I really do believe that complaining is a total waste of energy. Is everybody okay so far? (laughs) Yeah, it really is. Some of you might be wondering what it has to do with my text. Just bear with me. I understand that it's normal for humans to argue. We live in an argumentative culture, more so than it seems than ever before, and it's become the norm these days. And dominance always seems to be interested in winning than in the truth. Again, I'm not naive. I understand that argumentation, you know, is is a a human thing. It's a normal thing. But 
The truth often takes a back seat, would you agree, to beating our opponents. And we tend to argue a point even after being presented with incontrovertible evidence that we were wrong. Love is not, as far as I'm concerned, never has been about victory for one, defeating one or the other. Love is about us understanding the beauty and the diversity of unity. You know, uh, a few years ago, I was listening to a podcast where uh, uh, an esteemed rabbi from a rabbinical school in Manhattan made this statement that uh, just totally arrested me. And he said, between two rabbis, there's at least three opinions. I didn't hear anything he said after that for, 50, for about 15 minutes uh, because that was counterintuitive to me. That, you know, that just was not logical to me. But it's really true, isn't it? Because somewhere in between, we discover how God sees it. And this is what they're discovering in what Jesus said here um, whenever he began to talk about Turning the other cheeks, the first thing that he spoke of. Remember, what am I talking to you about? The power of powerlessness. And I want to come back again and note that there are people in this room that feel totally powerless in your particular situation. Someone else seems to be the one with the last word. And I want, if as much as I possibly can, to dispel that myth. It really is a myth. What is this, this great declaration from the Old Testament that says that he is set before us? He set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. He's waiting on you to choose. He's waiting on me to choose. So, let's consider the culture in which Jesus is offering this alternative wisdom when he says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, and he's specific there, isn't he? Don't, don't, there's no cause for concern. You just, you just happen to be convenient and available. If someone strikes you on the cheek then offer them your right cheek also. Now, see, they understood, and I'm not going to assume anything, they understood in that particular culture that the right hand was the hand that always represented power. Always represented power. The left hand, and I'm not going to elaborate on this, but the left hand was used for menial tasks. Uh, It was used specifically when you were doing things that had to do with your own body, Uh, if you catch my drift, okay? This is when you relieve yourself. I'll, I'll leave it at that. You don't use the right hand, you use the left hand. And this is deeply entrenched in that particular culture. So Jesus, whenever he says, if someone smites you on the cheek, turn to them the right cheek also. 
this language is rich in symbolism because it was common in an oppressive Roman culture. And I know you may, I'm not just talking about physical abuse, but it was common because abuse has all kinds of faces, doesn't it? So it was common for a Roman soldier if he was annoyed with someone in the Jewish culture to, without provocation, just strike them on the cheek because what this did was it reminded them of their inferior status, that I am the one in control. Let me remind you of that. Now, some of you have been slapped in the face, maybe not physically, but you've been slapped in the face verbally. I mean, you experience this on a daily basis in your work environment, in your culture. And then Jesus says, though, if they do that, up the ante. And let them have your right cheek also. Now, the reason why he said that is because he knew that the perpetrator would not use his left hand to strike strike him on the right cheek. And it would put him in a very awkward... Are you following me? It would put that individual in a very awkward position because his inability, he'd have to backhand them. He could not exert the power that he wanted to in that situation. I think what Jesus is trying to help all of us see that in many of the situations that we find ourselves in that are humiliating, where people with intention try to humiliate us, that we just perpetuate the situation, we we become responsible in empowering the situation, when we allow them to continue to do that. And Jesus is really saying to us that we don't have to be humiliated. We can really be in a position of power that looks like powerlessness. Is this making sense to you? I can't tell you how many times um, that because I'm I'm argumentative. That just felt good to get that out. And the reason why I'm argumentative is because I have a very fragile ego. The truth is, is that there really wouldn't be any wars if men would come to the place where it was not important to win an argument. You know, the ego works that way, doesn't it? Self-preservation. It wants to be right wants to prove itself right. I mean, this is the very air that we breathe right now. I mean, it's airborne, isn't it? I mean, you can't turn on any media source or even social media. There's always this back and forth, this constant polarization and division that is going on. And if you look at it closely, you see that really it is these power mongers that want to prove that they are right And if I look closely at the wisdom of Jesus, I don't see that. He's not constantly in this back and forth with people. I was talking with someone the other day that has become a real champion. I won't mention their name. You'd know the name. They've become a real champion in social justice. And I'm all in when it comes to that. 
But I told him, I said, I refuse to choose sides. Now, I know what the response is going to be for me is that if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Right? I said, but I choose the side of love because there are people over here that I have relationship with that I love that you would consider to be screaming liberals. I shouldn't have said that. I just lost a group of people here. But I have people that I have the same intense love with over here that are intolerant, right-wing, self-righteous conservatives. How did you get that out of what Jesus said? I really believe that's what he's saying, that the real power is in what is perceived as powerlessness. I'm getting ahead of myself, but probably the most powerful image in all of human history is the crucifixion. But he was utterly humiliated, wasn't he? Religious art has sanitized it. Religious art has cleaned it up. Not only was his body bludgeoned to the point beyond recognition. It would have taken dental records to identify him. Isaiah talks about it. It says his visage was marred more than any other man. When you read the account in the Gospel of John, the utter brutality that he experienced at the hands of the Romans, just leading up to the crucifixion, not counting the crucifixion itself, but leading up to this, the trauma that he underwent. And he absorbs all of this. And then... He hangs there the most disrespectful, dishonoring thing they could have done is they stretch him out on that cross nude. And I know that's offensive to a lot of people, but that's the way it was. That doesn't look like power. Make it relevant for me. I'm doing my best. Who or what right now is utterly humiliating you? I know that it seems irrational, but it is in our weakness that his strength is made perfect. The scripture makes that clear. I have this insatiable need to always want to save face. Let me see those hands here. I mean, yeah. To always want to save face. I'm always, you know, I find myself obsessing over what will people think. And the Proverbs warn me about that. How will it look? Jesus says when that happens to you, it certainly is unfair. It is filled with injustice. But take it on the chin and offer him the other one and see where the real power emerges. Ladies and gentlemen, I I, I know that this is difficult for us, but I believe that it works. I believe this is the gospel. I believe this is the gospel. Then if that wasn't enough, what's the next thing that he says? He says, if someone sues you, don't only give them your tunic, but give them your cloak also. Anybody right now in some litigious situation 
that is driving you out of your mind? Some legal situation? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Been there, done that. You know, when I was going through it, I was obsessed with getting out of it rather than what I was going to get out of it. Failing to understand that wisdom is not always asking, why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? But real wisdom says, what is it saying to me? What is this saying to me? Because it's an assault on my ego, isn't it? Thank you for letting me just get this out. This is so therapeutic for me. Some of you, I'm telling you, the way you're looking at me. So if they sue you, he said, don't just give them uh, uh, your tunic, but give them your cloak also. Remember, I'm talking about the power of powerlessness. Because, again, you know, I, I never could have conceived when I was in my 20s that we would live in such an ambulance chaser culture. (laughs) There, I said it. I'm appalled. I'm no longer amused at the the commercials that I see. And some of you know people uh, people, uh, that are going through this right now, and the injustice is just mind-boggling. But Jesus would say, if the suit gets that bad, he said, not only give them your tunic, give them your cloak off. Do you realize what he's suggesting here? Who is really being humiliated in the situation? The person that is pressing this situation to the point where I'm going to leave you naked. That's really what he's saying. Go ahead. Let them strip you naked. See who's really embarrassed here. See who really has the power. Then he goes on, and the next thing he says, if you are asked, you're compelled to walk a mile, and I know that this audience is well taught, and you know that this, again, was a cultural norm that a Roman soldier, Praetorian soldiers, were given the right by the law to compel someone to recruit them at a whim to carry their pack for a mile. He says, if they do it what, a mile, take it two miles. Go the second mile. We've heard that all of our lives, right? Jesus knew that in doing that, that the person who was acting within the law would be guilty of breaking the law. <laughs> Such beautiful and alternative wisdom, isn't it? You see, I came here this morning with this in mind to try to help anyone that I can in this room that is going through whatever situation, whether it's in employment, relationally, whatever. I mean, I could share with you some of my own personal stories and I look at it and I think, God, why are you indifferent to that? Why didn't you do something about it? We all secretly sometimes, listen to this closely, we all secretly believe that God has lied to us about certain things because he made promises that have yet to come to pass. 
You see, the real issue here, as far as I'm concerned, is he has evidence that is not evident to us. I want things to be made right the way I see things should be made right. And don't realize that I can experience a power that is unlike anything I have ever known when I am willing to lose my life. This is one of the many conundrums that Jesus presented to, to, in his teaching. He said, if you lose your life, or first of all, he said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you'll, def- you'll find it. I can imagine the response of the people that heard that for the first time. If you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose it for my sake, you'll find it. What on earth does that mean? Some of you are ahead of me, and you know the word life there comes from, or, or the, the word soul also that is used there, comes from the word psyche or suke. It's the way I think about things. How many of you right now are desperate to be justified in a situation? Are you willing to absorb it? Are you willing to be misunderstood? Are you? Are you? Are you willing to lose your life so that you can discover who you really are? Because the only reason why God ever introduced himself to you in the beginning is to introduce you to the you he knew you to be before you became the you you think you are. I knew I'd get that response. Sometimes when I say those things, I think people sit, think I just sit around all day long trying to think of clever aphorisms, you know, clever things to say. No, that's not. I, I, I can tell you where I was when he said that to me. It came in the wake of a very tense situation. Uh, I don't even remember what it was all about. It's kind of like, you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> when firemen go to a place after a building's already burned down and they try to investigate and discover what started it all? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, have you ever found yourself in a raging, inflamed situation, and you have a, a, a moment of sanity, and you're, wonder, you're wondering to yourself, how did, I almost said a bad word. <laughs> how in the heck <laughs> did all this start? Come on, don't look at me in that tone of voice. Are you, it, right? I'm, I, don't, I don't even remember how this started. <laughs> and uh, it was you know, some situation that my wife and I are in. My wife is one of the most demure, passive people you ever want to meet. Such a phlegmatic, easygoing person. And I don't remember what it was about, but I had a moment of clarity, and I looked at her and I said, I've got a big ego, don't I? And without hesitation, this is what shocked me and put me back on my heels. She said, no, but you've got a fragile one. You see, it was in that moment I was learning the power of powerlessness. 
I learned something about myself. There is no such thing as subjective truth, is there? I learned something about myself that I could not have learned unless I was in the place of powerlessness. And I say this without fear of contradiction. I can tell you that every person in your life, every person in your life is a teacher. What I'm doing right now, most of you will forget by the day's end. But the persons that you have to see every day, especially the ones that are the most perplexing, God has sent into your life to teach you something about yourself. I love what Paula D'Arcy said. She says that God comes to us disguised as our own life. Some of you have taken some pretty tough hits lately that uh, have you in a fog. I mean, you've been caught like a boxer that doesn't see that right cross coming, and it's cracked your jaw. You are speechless, and you're addled, and you don't even realize that even in that, that God is getting ready to release a new empowerment. They cannot do anything to you. That's why Jesus stands before Pilate in silence. There, I was going to talk to you about the power of stillness and silence, but I thought maybe it just might bore you out of your mind. Because, you know, we live in a culture that is definitely overstimulated It really is. Makes it totally impossible for us to be fully present, it seems, in any given moment. We get really nervous with stillness and silence. You know, one of the most definitive things about Jesus was whenever the scripture says that the spirit drove him into the wilderness. And there, I think it's Mark's gospel, and there were wild beasts. Probably the toughest thing for him was to be totally unplugged totally unplugged from all forms of stimulus and he is in a howling wilderness with wild beasts all around him. But I think when he emerged out of the wilderness, he knew more clearly who he was than he did even when he came up out of the waters of the Jordan River, dripping wet with the voice of God, rending the heavens and saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So he stands before Pilate, and Pilate reminds him, don't you understand who has control over you? You know, when we read those verses of Scripture, and I'm coming in for a landing, when we read those verses of Scripture, I think we have the tendency to think that all of this happened as quickly as we can read it. But imagine how awkward it must have been. Here is Pilate, who at the first of the week, remember how he had come into the city? Because when we read about the triumphal entry, you see, the the biblical narrative does not give us the, the full description of what was going on. 
in that week. Because Jesus is coming in from one end of the city. And this is, <laughs> to call it a parade uh, is, is humorous to say the least because Je- Jesus comes in and he's riding on the foal of a donkey. Here is a grown man and this little donkey is about, his little spindly legs are about to break under the weight of a grown man. And they're saying, Hosanna. On the other side of the city, Pilate is coming in, and he is riding a stallion, surrounded by chariots, soldiers that are dressed in full armor, with lances and swords and shields. This is the dichotomy of all of that. Jesus is coming in from one direction in what appears to be humiliation, total humiliation. It's comical. Where's the real power? The showdown took place at the end of the week, didn't it? When he stood before him, he says, don't you understand that I have the last word with you? And Jesus allowed those, those pregnant, awkward silences. And then finally, he breaks in. He says, you have no power over me other than what's given to you from above. You see, I think when we, when we can begin to grasp this, we'll begin to understand that it is, and some of this is going to be, it's going to be a stretch for you. I know it's going to be a stretch for you. But you can actually become immune to intimidation. Because it's only those who are insecure that intimidate to begin with. Secure people don't use intimidation or manipulation. Some of the things that are so intimidating right now, it's not what they're doing to you, it's what you're giving them the permission to do. It's true. We teach people how to treat us. And I'm not being insensitive. I know that we live in a, you know, a culture where there are all kinds of victims. I get that. But maybe, just maybe, because Jesus appeared to be a victim, didn't he? <laughs> maybe there's more power for the victims. Maybe they're the ones who are the real victors. You do understand that all of human history has been written by those who won the wars and that does not necessarily mean that what they wrote about what happened, that it went down that way. I mean, that's, that's a sobering thought, isn't it? Including our history, all of human history is basically written by those who win and the oppressed have no voice. And Jesus cannot resist the oppressed. I mean, have you read the Gospels? He is always going to the marginalized. He's always going to the oppressed. He's always going to those that are without security. He cannot, God has a weakness, and it's your weakness. Yeah, it's good. It blesses me because I'm painfully aware of my own. 
the power and powerlessness. Now, <clears throat> I feel compelled uh, in closing here uh, to ask for people that are in a situation right now financially where you feel totally powerless. And I know what that's like because I went through a situation a few years ago uh, which was <clears throat> one of the most defining moments in my life because for over 35, almost, four, well, 40 years, for 40 years, I prided myself in being able to think my way through situations, navigate my way through them, and I got into a situation, and some could, on the outside, you know, because I'll tell you, <clears throat> once you discover God's purpose for your life, everybody buys a ticket to show up. <laughs> you know, they're all critics, aren't they, of the life they've never lived. They want to show, show up, buy a ticket to watch what goes down. Sound familiar to Anybody? I couldn't think my way out of this one, and at the time, I didn't get it, but I was totally powerless, and I began to understand that it was in this moment that I was, I was deriving the most valuable lesson of my entire life, the most defining. You were somewhat aware of it when I was going through it a few years ago, and it was the, the, the invaluable, in, incalculable nature of learning to trust God in ways I had never trusted him before. Because he told me, he said, you've never trusted me. I was offended. <laughs> but now you're in a situation, you can't think your way through it. You're going to have to trust your way through it. People had made decisions <clears throat> that were severely affecting my life. And I, I thought, well, I'm... I'm like I said earlier, I allowed myself to be held hostage to their hustle. <laughs> I wouldn't take anything for it. So people here this morning that are in financial situations in which you feel powerless, I want you to stand if you've got the courage to do that. Because I have the authority to pray for you. If I can be so audacious. Some of you are being sued. Some of you, <clears throat> what is going on right now is unconscionable. There is a higher law. There's a law that existed before man ever began to craft laws. I wish somebody would just release some energy in this room right now into what I'm saying. The law of love. The law of God, his unrequited desire to make sure that you are restored and made whole. And I declare that over you this morning in the name of Jesus, the one who paid it all, the one who owns it all. Man, I feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. And where none say restore, as the prophet says, I say restore. 
And this word will not return void, not because it originated with me, but because it originated in the one who restores years, restores everything that has been lost. And I say to you this morning, in the authority of his word, because his word will not return void, it will accomplish that in which he pleases, and it will prosper in that thing whereto he has sent it. Amen? That he's going to restore double. I'll take it. I'll take yours too if you don't want it. I'm taking it now. I'm going to take double. Cast down every imagination that causes you to think, but how? Stop asking how. I don't see how. Yours is not to understand how. Philip Yancey says that faith is trusting that what does not make sense now will in reverse. So we declare it this morning. We declare it in the name of Jesus. Thank you for restoring, Lord. Thank you for restoring. People are, who are in custody battles right now people that are in custody battles, people that are going through a divorce. Is there anyone like that this morning? I want you to stand right there. Is there another? Custody and divorce. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, you can stand for someone else you know. That's fine. That's fine. If you're standing for someone else, I tell you with a surety that when you go to speak with them because you've groped for words and you've not been able to find the words, that the encourager, the comforter who resides in you will not only surprise you, but surprise the one to whom you have been sent by what flows out of you to help them to understand that they are are empowered in their powerlessness. (laughs) That God is going to get the glory out of all of this. That whatever pain that they have suffered, if they don't internalize it, if they don't allow that to interpret them, if they transform the pain rather than continuing to transmit the pain, then they will experience the redemptive purposes of God. You see, this is something, uh, I hope I've not gone over my time. Okay. This is something I think the church is in desperate need of right now is a reinterpretation of the purpose of suffering. I don't pray for suffering. I don't desire suffering. It's inevitable. It's how I interpret the suffering. If I see it the way God sees it, and I know that I can move through it in the same way he did, because death and burial always leads to resurrection. It's moving through it to resurrection. Come on now. Some of you right now, <clears throat> the way you see things, it, it's, it's not in resurrected glory. It's decayed and deteriorating. <clears throat> it's irreversible damage. 
waters have been poured. I was reminded of this obscure passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. It talks about how water that is poured out on the ground, that it cannot be collected again. It's in your suffering. It's in your suffering that he's going to bring you to greater levels of glory in the resurrection experience. Because we're all here to learn how not to thrive or to survive, but to surrender. That's the only reason why I still got a pulse. Really, it's, it's, the, it's the only reason why my heart is still beating is not so that I can stand in front of audiences and talk to them. The only reason why I'm here is to learn how to surrender. That's why Paul said, I die daily. It's learning how to die well. How many of you want to learn how to die well before you eventually die? Do you? Amen. Go ahead and stand. Thank you. Thank you so much this morning uh, for not changing the lock on the door and leaving the light on for me. Lord, we thank you. We rejoice this morning. We rejoice in what we've heard. We rejoice in the power of your word that is now resonating in us, that is causing all of us to dial up our vibrational energy to the point that we will not be brought down in the density of what man tries to do to us. We, and we, we hear the words of the Apostle Paul, and you who are dead in trespasses and sin, hath he quickened you? Not, he's not going to quicken you. He has quickened you and made you to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen.